a biblical Renaissance man. So Exodus chapter 34 has a couple of verses which I'll read for you. This kind of defines why we are here this evening. In Exodus chapter 34, and gentlemen, if one of you could zip up here and bring one to, your, to Pastor Gaiman, Seth or Luke, if you don't mind, please. Thank you so much. Exodus 34 tells us, Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. So we're instructed, and there are two other places in the Old Testament text, that we are to appear before God in three times in the year. Now, at times I've kind of wondered what we're supposed to do when we appear. And Scripture doesn't give us much information regarding that. I can only conclude that the appearance itself is of significance and importance because it's a time in which you have you have departed from your regular habitation, and thus you have made a special effort. And that special effort in and of itself is, the, is what is valued with respect to our Father in heaven. Now, it seems that it's appropriate then at these three times, since the men have been gathered at these three times, that there might be some message that men ought to hear, and there might be something that we should reflect upon as men. This Bible study tonight really is focused primarily upon men, for men, for young men, for boys who are of an age of understanding. They're old enough to listen. I know that that might make feel ladies a little bit left out. It's not my intent to do so. And it, it turns out, as I reflect upon what I prepared this evening for you, that there might be actually some value for the ladies to pay attention as well. Of course, all the ladies who are mothers of sons would want to pay attention and would want to take observations, make observations that they can apply in the way that they mother their children, in the way that they encourage their sons as they grow and move toward manhood. But it turns out that some of the things that I'm discussing actually might have direct application for ladies as well, with a little bit of a tweak, shall we kind of turn and twist it just a little bit and apply it in a slightly different way, there may be some value as well. So ladies, if you feel a little left out this evening, it, I, I please accept a little bit of an apology here but it's not my intent to, to do so. It's my intent to speak directly to the men and encourage and exhort uh, men to manhood. Now, as a preface, before we begin on the, the outline directly, men and ladies, of course, have different roles in sustaining a culture and a society. There's plenty of tension between men and ladies as to whose fault it is when it comes to some of the problems that we encounter. When we find that marriage is dissolving, or we find that there's just trouble from different quarters, we find that men are quick to declare that feminism and women are the cause, 
and women are quick to point out that men have great failures. And in a word, a lot of them are just jerks. So, but we don't get very far in pointing the finger at each other. And that's not my purpose here tonight. My purpose tonight really is to focus on the duties and tasks of men. Because men, to a large degree, are the bearers of culture and the bearers of society. Now, women are the nurturers of society. It is upon their plate, shall we say, the, 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 the challenge and the duty to raise up a new generation. That is their primary task in life, is to raise up another generation. And it's the task of men to take action in a society, in a culture, to sustain and to build and to make that generation. For men, it is, perhaps you could use the word dominion. So men, if we wish to be men of dominion, we've got to think like that, and we've got to think biblically, and we've got to think in terms of the culture we live in, and we've got to try to wrap our minds around the task that's before us. So the word renaissance does not appear in Scripture. It's a a word that goes back into the into sort of a uh, Italian Latin origin. It just means something like rebirth. But the phrase Renaissance man has its own impetus. It has its own thrust. It has its, its own meaning. Now, I think it might be a biblical concept, though. And that's really what I'd like to explore tonight is this sort of a, what I would say is a, a biblical concept that developed a phraseology of its own distinct from Scripture in the 14 and 1500s of Western civilization, and that is a Renaissance man. Now, the opening text I have is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we find in this chapter that Paul is describing his own mission, his own purpose, and his own method. Now, beginning in chapter number 9 of 1 Corinthians, And reading at verse 19, Paul has these things to say. He says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but unto the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Now the key concept here, I think, is in verse 22, in which Paul says, I am all things to all men. To those who are weak, I am like unto you. To those who are strong, I am like unto you. To those who know about God's law, I know about God's law. To those who do not know about God's law, I can relate to you as well. I am all things to all men that I might bring all to Christ and save some. And in God's election, he wouldn't know how many. That's God's purview. So Paul was a man of enormous talent and flexibility. 
that he might better fulfill God's mission in his life and be more useful to the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we were to step back in time to the 1500s, and we were to look at Western civilization at a, a moment that's rather interesting, you would find that a man with a classic education was expected to have at least two dual skill sets. The first skill set he was expected to have was skill in the written word. The second skill set was very different, weapons of war. This was a Renaissance man of those days. He was expected to be able to write, to think, to speak, to discuss on a wide variety of topics and quite possibly in multiple languages. He was also expected to be able to fight and to make war and to kill and when called for to enter into battle for organized murder. A bloody duty. Now, in my opinion, the Renaissance man of that era were on to a, a concept that is worthy of our investigation. But I think it needs to be updated. And I need, think it needs to be shifted into a more biblical frame of reference. And this biblical frame of reference is what I'd like to show you tonight. And place that frame of reference within the context of our own society that you and I live in today. Now, we didn't get to pick the world that we were born into. We didn't get to, we, some, some of us with a spirit of adventure would have said, hey, I would have liked to have been on the Oregon Trail. I would have liked to have been one of those trappers at the rendezvous. Or I might have liked to have been a crusader. Or I might like to have been, a, you know, with George Washington or, or whatever it is that's your cup of tea. I don't know. But you didn't get to choose that. You got to chose this moment in time. Well, you didn't choose this moment in time, but here you are. God plopped you down right here. And the skills and the talents that are needed now are different from those that were then. I do not need to know, probably, how to fix a wagon wheel or how to set a snare, how to fletch an arrow, so forth and so on. The multiple duties of life that men face still require balance and flexibility and varied skills. And as men, I don't know how well we really do in this area, in, in, in covering all of the bases that we need to cover to be the kind of a biblical man that we're going to look at tonight, the kind of man that has the wide range of flexibility that is needed for all occasions so that you can be all things to all men, as St. Paul was. It turns out that some of the best examples of manhood in Scripture displayed various dual talents, talents that were very diverse. And I'd like to explore some of that tonight. So as we begin, and I guess I'd better move right along here, I'd like to start with Isaiah. And the first example that we're going to look at is a man who understands spiritual matters, but he understands both sides of the coin regarding the world that he lives in. 
Now we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6 to see and look at this man Isaiah and what we can glean on this particular area. So it turns out that Isaiah, I believe, was a Renaissance man in his own right. Because he understood spiritual matters and he also understood carnal human nature. Let's think about that for just a moment. He understood spiritual matters, so he was a spiritual man, yet he also understood carnal nature, the carnal fallen nature of man within his own self, within himself. Now the word carnal means it's dealing with the spirit, rather the flesh, not the spirit. It's dealing with all the things that plug into our fleshly existence. And it turns out Isaiah had an understanding of both things. So just real quick, let's, let's look at the book of Isaiah chapter number 6 as this man begins his ministry. And we're going to see these two contrasted. First of all, Isaiah begins with an understanding of the righteousness of God. The deep and abiding righteousness of God. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Now here Isaiah is describing a vision that God gave him. It just happened to be in the same year that King Uzziah died. He's simply telling us when the vision occurred. And the vision was this, in verse 2. He saw God. He saw a vision of God upon His throne. He says, above the throne stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other. One seraphim cried to the other seraphim. And said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. The voices were so powerful that the building shook. The structure shook. It made a tremendous impression upon Isaiah. The righteousness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So he had a great understanding of the righteousness of God. But let's keep reading, because now his first and instantaneous response was his own inadequacy. Verse 5, he said, Woe is me! I am undone! Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory." It was believed in Old Testament times that if one had a glimpse of the divine, that you would die. And Isaiah may have thought he was going to die at that very moment because of his uncleanness before God. What Isaiah recognized was his own sin nature. And I would phrase it this way. He recognized the reality that I would call this constant tug of sin nature. A constant downward pull. In the same sense that you and I cannot escape gravity and its downward tug. 
so it is with sin nature. It is constantly, ever-present, pulling us in a direction we ought not to go. And we can't escape it. And it's only with a counterbalance that pulls in the other direction that we have any productivity and usefulness to God. And in his case, Isaiah, he instantly recognized his own inadequacy and his, the inadequacy in his case that mattered. He identified his own weakness, his own particular weakness that was the one that mattered for him. And he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, I'm not sure what that means when he said, I'm of unclean lips. But it's clearly an inadequacy that is focused upon his ability to speak and function and, and be a, a, a minister or a prophet of some sort. And he says, I'm inadequate to that task and that calling. And then if we keep reading, one of the seraphims brought a coal down, touched it to his lips and says, you are now cleansed and made useful. Now, in this case, what I would like to point out to you the, in, as we think about a biblical man and a biblical Renaissance man who has some flexibility and recognizes where he is at in the world he lives in and his own inadequacies is this. Because he understood the righteousness of God and because Isaiah recognized the constant tug of sin nature, this biblical Renaissance man was able to walk a path of repentance and therefore became useful to God. His usefulness to God was made and was made, uh, was, was capable, that is, he was made capable because of his recognition of his own limitations and his own failures, his own proclivities and his own inadequacies. Now, I'd like to ask you two questions, men. And ladies, you can reflect on this from in your own life. I would like to ask you this question. What is your greatest potential weakness? How well do you know yourself? What is your greatest potential weakness? The one that perhaps, perhaps you have never even discussed it with anyone. Perhaps it is one that is too private. It is too embarrassing. It is too close to you. It is too deep. Too, it, is, it is, is embedded too deeply that you're really not something you don't want to talk about. Well, I don't know if that's you. Perhaps you're a transparent person and you've talked about it many times with others. And you know for sure what your greatest potential weakness is. But if you know what your greatest single point of weakness might be, your own carnal flesh, does it run in this direction over here? Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it this? Is it that? What is your own greatest weakness? If you can identify that, then you can ask the next question. How is this weakness likely to damage you? How is it likely to damage you? What are the possible scenarios that you can run through your mind as to how that weakness might hurt you, harm you, and harm those that are connected to you? And what then, of course, once you've identified it, what can you do to change that? What can you do like Isaiah did to say, 
I know my weakness and my flaw, and I know, it, I know something has got to happen here before I'm going to be useful to God. So that's our beginning point. Now I'd like to go to our second area. The second area is a little bit different. It's, it's, we're going to look at Abraham as our example. I've got a couple of passages identified for us in the book of Genesis. So if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 14, we're going to look at Abraham next. We're going to see that in the case of Abraham, he has to wear more than one hat. We discover that a biblical Renaissance man has at least these two hats he has to wear. Both of them require a lot. And it's difficult for men to bear both of them. But here they are. I think a biblical Renaissance man is a public man and a family man. You have these two polar responsibilities that do not always fit together very well. Now, as a public man, he recognizes that he has a broad civic duty. That is to say, as a public man, you recognize that you are not, as one English poet said, something to the effect, you're not an island. You're connected to others whether you wish to be or not. You are a public man to some degree whether you wish to be or not. You are a social creature. You are not the trapper living in the timber in the far western Rockies who only comes out once a year for the rendezvous. That is not you. You function with others. You, you are supposed to function with others. And there are responsibilities attached. Even if you don't recognize those responsibilities, they're there. I mean, there are a lot of trivial examples I could cite. You have a car, you drive on the road, you have some responsibility along with everybody else to somehow somebody has to contribute to maintain the road so that you can drive on it. And there is a, 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 a hundred different examples I could cite that are each one individually maybe small. But collectively, they show that you are part of one or more larger communities. So many of us are part of a larger church community, a congregation that needs someone to do this or this or this or this. And whether we like it or not, we are part of a larger community that is a public community. It's a town. We live in a state. We live in a nation. We may not be happy with the state of our town or our nation, but nonetheless, here we are. And to abandon completely those public duties can be problematic. As one wise man said, which I'm sure you've heard, goes something like this, for, for evil to prosper, good men just do nothing. So if you're a good man, then what can you do to make your public life and your community better? So if we look in the case of Abraham, Abraham felt a little bit like a stranger and an alien in the land to which he was called, the land of Canaan. But nonetheless, once he arrived in the land of Canaan, we begin to learn about his life, 
we begin to see that he did involve himself at times in the affairs of that land. He was compelled to do so at times, even though they didn't really share the same religion and the same worldview. There's one case though I'd like to cite in which Abraham felt compelled by duty to become this, shall we say, a public man. In Genesis chapter 14, you may recall the story. I won't take time to read it. But the story goes like this. There was a war. Abraham wasn't involved. He didn't want to get involved. But when, they, when the, the, the city of Sodom was attacked, and his foolish nephew, who he really could have just brushed off and said, well, there's that foolish nephew of mine who moved into that city of Sodom. When his foolish nephew ended up being captured, Abraham was compelled to get involved in the war. And he did. He armed his 318 servants. They went out to battle. They fought a battle. They won. He brought back the booty. He brought back the reward. Gave gifts back to the king of Sodom. Met the king of Salem. So forth and so on. We could read all about it in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham had to become a public man. And there are times, gentlemen, that we have to become public men. And we have to engage with the larger world. And it may not be under the circumstances that we wish. But there is some responsibility in this area. Now the family side. Because as a public man, Abraham recognized that he had a broad civic duty. But as a family man... Now let's look at the family. Most of us are family men. Most men ought to be family men. As a family man, he attended to the needs of his wife and his children. Now scripture has a lot to say about Abraham's family and his family life. Much of, of the text of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, are about Abram's family life. There's a case, though, that I'd like to call your attention to regarding how Abraham attended to the needs of his family, and in this particular case, the needs of his wife. It's an interesting story. But if we turn to Genesis 16, we have a little recap. It tells us that Sarah, his wife, had no children. Now, this was a bit of a problem on multiple levels, covenantally, as well as on a personal level. But notice how it's phrased, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. This wasn't merely a problem for Abraham. So many times we read through the chapters of Genesis and we see Abraham's life and we say, gee, God promised him that he'd be a father of many nations and he'd have a son and he'd have children and blood, etc. You know, all kinds of descendants, etc., etc. We focus on Abraham. But Genesis 16, verse 2 gives us a little insight into Sarah and how she plays a role in this. And I'd like you to observe how Abraham responds to Sarah's perspective. Sarah now, because she was not having any children, in verse 2, she does something that was surprising, at least surprising in our culture, perhaps less so to them. But Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, and it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Now notice it says, Sarah, it says, Sarah said, I can obtain children by her. It doesn't say 
It doesn't say what we might be presuming it should say, which is also true, but is presuming. It doesn't say, Sarah says, husband, go into Hagar here so that you can have children by her. It doesn't say, I feel badly that I can't give you a son, so let's go get a concubine and you can have children by her. Then you'll have a son. It doesn't say that. It says that I may have children. So what this is revealing is not so much a statement of, of, of biological reality. It's a statement of her emotional condition. It's a statement of her own need. Her own innate need was that she had to have children. This was something that was extraordinarily important to her. And she needed to be able to fulfill this sense that I wanted children. I have a desire for children. And this desire needs to be met. And Abraham, I, I need you to help me do this. And so Abraham says, okay, sure. So as a family man, he was attending to the needs of his wife. And you say, okay, well, how did that all work out? Well, we know a little bit about this story, don't we? If we drop down a few more verses, we discover that when Hagar became pregnant, Hagar, the concubine, then began to apparently uh, be a little bit uppity because it says she despised Sarah. And Sarah said to Abraham, she says, um, let's get rid of this gal. <laughs> she says, I don't know if I want to keep her around. Well, Abraham says, look, you can do with what you want with her. Abraham's told Sarah, sure, I, I understand the way you feel. Uh, this is not, this is, you, you just treat her, you, you deal with her as you need to. So it says Sarah dealt harshly with her, and the girl ran away. Well, she went out in the desert and had her own experience, and that's another story, but she eventually comes back. And she learns to live under Sarah and the authority of Sarah. But if we flash forward, that's not the end of the story. If we jump forward in time to Genesis chapter 21, we discover that as time passes and this child begins to grow, and we discover that Sarah has another child, that, that there is some tension in the household. And this time Sarah says, all right, I've had it with this. She's got to go. And what did Abram do? Did he say, wait a minute, <laughs> that's my son. You can't chase him out of the house. Who do you think you are? It's kind of surprising, but it says in verse 12 of Genesis 21, God said to Abraham, let it not be grievous in the sight because of the lad and because this bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken to her voice, listen to her, send her out. Now, what I'm driving at is this. I'm driving at the point that Abraham, as well as having this public duty that he came out to, to attend to from time to time, had a deep and abiding love and commitment to Sarah. And he had such a commitment and love for her that he was willing to, to take her perspective and let her perspective be the guiding principle 
in working the way through this problem. He was willing to let this young lady be treated harshly. He was willing to let this young lady be cast out into the desert. He was willing to let his son by this lady be cast out as well in order to preserve Sarah's sense of well-being. Now, in God's larger providence, there were many other factors working. I'm only looking at the human element here between Abram and Sarah as they work their way through these issues of life. Like many of us, we have issues of life that we have to work through. And gentlemen, you have got two hats that you've got to wear. You have got to wear this hat that says, I'm a family man, and the key to my family is my wife. I have got to be a good husband. I must be a good husband. I've got to be able to see the world the way she sees the world. I've got to look at her perspectives. I've got to see her emotional needs. I've got to perceive what is working within her. And I've got to take those into account to make her a happy wife. Now that's a pretty hard thing to do at times. But men, you've got another polar duty over here as well. There are times you've got to put this public hat on and you've got to engage a larger world as well. So you're going to have to be this Renaissance man. You've got this duty over here, which is big and it may be difficult. And you've got this duty over here, which is big and it may be difficult. And you've got both of them that you've got to manage. You've got more than one ball to keep up in the air at a time. You can't just be good at one thing. That's not good enough. You've got to be a public man and a private man. Got to be a family man and a man that encounters the world. So what was the result? The result of of successfully managing the public and the family on both counts is this. He earned trust. Abraham earned trust. And you, becoming a biblical renaissance man, will earn your wife's trust in managing your multiple loyalties. So two questions. Setting aside the financial parts of life, setting aside the tithe, the question could be posed, what regular contribution do you make to a community beyond your family? Now, I ask the question in that respect because most men tend to default to the family rather than defaulting in the other direction. And so the community gets ignored. And that might be why the larger state of affairs in our nation is the way it is. Because we haven't been good enough public men. So what regular contribution do you make to a community beyond your own family? And then another question, beyond the financial provision, what is your wife's most basic need and how are you meeting this? What is your wife's most basic need? Now, I'm not talking about need for getting the bills paid or having food on the table, because a lot of men are going to say, look, I'm a good provider. I've done everything I need to do. Well, that's just the beginning to be a good family man. And to be a good husband, that's a good start. But there are other things. So what is your wife's most basic need? And it won't be the same with each lady. Not every woman is the same. Your wife will have needs. 
They may grow out of her insecurities. All of us have insecurities, (laughs) anxieties, irrational fears. What are your wife's most basic fundamental needs and what are you doing? How are you meeting that? All right, let's go to another area. And this is a very intense practical area. Very practical area. A biblical Renaissance man, and I'm on the back of the outline for those who like these outlines. So a biblical Renaissance man has two qualities now as we go to item three. He is both well-read and he is skilled in practical tasks. A biblical renaissance is both well-read and skilled in practical tasks. Now, that's a tall order. But our example is Paul. If you look at the life of St. Paul, we can see that this amazing man could do more than one thing. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 18, let me read for you a couple of passages here. In Acts chapter 18, it says that, In verse 1, that Paul left Athens and decided to go to a city named Corinth. And when he got there, he decided to stay with a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe there's a poem there. And then it says in verse 3, because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Did you know that St. Paul was a tent maker? Well, some of you probably did. It's not mentioned much in Scripture, but it turns out that Paul was a tent maker, and in this case, he worked with them. Now, if I were to read you all the passages that Paul has to wrote about work and labor, you would discover that Paul was a man who held working in high regard. He told Timothy that if if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. There's all kinds of examples from the writings of Paul that tell us that he had a very strong, practical work ethic, and he was not above working with his hands and making tents. Now, I don't know much about making tents, But I'm presuming in those days, making a tent was probably a pretty difficult task, dealing with the tools of sewing things together, and you don't have any power machinery or anything of this nature. And you're working with hand tools to make a tent. Paul could do that. I wonder, where did he learn that? And why would he have learned that? But let's go a little further, because that, of course, was not all about what Paul was like. It tells us in the very next verse that while he was making tents, that wasn't really why he went to Corinth. He went to Corinth for the, what's cited in verse number 4, not verse number 3. In verse 4, it tells us he went into the synagogue every week and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Paul's purpose here was to be an evangelist. And he's speaking to both those who are of a Hebrew background and those of a Greek background. Now this is in many other places. In fact, the same chapter tells us he moved on to Ephesus and did the same thing. That's in verse 19 of the same chapter. 
And if we keep reading about St. Paul, we discover all kinds of little tidbits. Um, we discover, for example, in Acts chapter 22, Paul went to Jerusalem and he got arrested and got in trouble. And over the course of his arrest and trial and his public defense, we discovered that Paul could speak two different languages. He could speak Greek and he could speak Hebrew. Well, an interesting man. And then it tells us in verse 3 that Paul learned and studied the law under Gamaliel. Now, that might not mean much to you, but in the first century, that meant a lot. Gamaliel was sort of like, um, well, his, that name was kind of like what Einstein is to us. Gamaliel was the, the scholar, the Hebrew scholar of scholars. And Paul studied directly underneath him. Quite the intellectual. So what we're discovering is this. Paul had two talents, two gifts. Both were cultivated, both were valued, and both were things that he brought forward in his life to be able to exercise a greater and broader mission. All right, so here's what we want to be as a Renaissance man. And here's my exhortation to all of you. So men, listen closely now. I really want you to think about this. I want all the men in the congregation to think about this. Because this is difficult. A Renaissance man is skilled with tools. In our time, you need to be skilled with tools so that you can build and repair things. And Paul could do that. And you should be able to do that. I don't really think you need to be have the Renaissance skills of the 1500s in which you need to be really skilled with weapons of war. I mean, this is not like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet where the two families are at war. It's not the Hatfields and the McCoys. This isn't West Virginia in the 1870s. That's not the world you live in. It's interesting to read about. Probably some things we could learn about reading about it. But the world you live in requires these two poles that Paul exhibited. He was a biblical Renaissance man. And, I, and on this point, while we're looking at the skills of St. Paul, if he's our biblical Renaissance man, I'm not seeing that Paul was a great warrior. There's times that we need great warriors. I'm not sure right now is it, but we'll see. I'm not telling you not to have a gun in your dresser. But I'm telling you that you ought to have these two items. You ought to have these skills. You need hands-on tools. You need to be able to fix, build, and repair things. You need to be a Paul. You need to be able to do the equivalent of being a tent maker. Now, gentlemen, there's something else, though. Paul was well-read. Gentlemen, we need to be well-read. We need to be well-read. And not enough of us are. We need to be able to think and discuss abstract ideas. We are in a spiritual war, and a dimension of spiritual warfare is the warfare of ideas. And we need to be thinkers. To be a good thinker, you have to have background knowledge. You need a wide variety of background knowledge. It takes time to acquire. 
and you've got to read to get it. Now, I would like to talk about this, these two things here. Um, let me tell you about the result, okay? The result of being both well-read and skilled in practical tools is the fact that you're going to be able to solve many problems of varied natures, and you're going to be able to, you're going to, be able to maintain and uphold and be capable of a lot of responsibility. That's the result. Being able to solve many problems and be capable of much responsibility. So I've got two questions. Now the first one, in the last 12 months, let me ask you this just very practical question. What new tool have you acquired and learned to use? Now, in our world, if you're going to be a man of practical skills, to be able to fulfill the, the duties and tasks of life, it would be great, it would be wonderful if over the years you acquire a storehouse of tools that you know how to use. Now, a lot of us do okay in this area. Some of us don't. But let me ask you this question. In the last 12 months, what book have you finished that has expanded your worldview? And I think, and I'm, 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 I'm very, I guess I'd say I'm a little bit passionate about this. We need to read, men. We need to read. I don't know if our boys growing up see us read. They see us work. But do they see us learn? Do they see us read? Do they see us really seriously spend a little time reading? Now, you know there's 365 days in a year. And a typical book probably doesn't have more than 300 pages. Now, if you could average one page a day, that's not much. You could read a book every year. So if you're able to uh, say, well, I have read a good book in the last year, well, that's good. It's not amazing, but it's good. That's good. If you can't say that, that's a pity. You say, well, Mr. Benson, you're just one of those arrogant scholarly types. I don't mean to be. And if, if I am making you feel like I am, that's not my intent. I'm not asking men to get degrees. I'm not asking men to get letters after your name. I'm asking you to read. Amen. I'm asking you to read. Amen. Now, what should you read? You say, well, I read things all the time. Social media doesn't count. Amen. That doesn't count. Amen. Social media does not count. You say, well, I read more things more substantial to that. I read articles. That's good. That's good. You should read books. Amen. Read books. Amen. Now, why would a, a book be better than an article? You all ask yourself this question. Which is easier to write, a book or an article? I can assure you, writing an article of a thousand words is a lot easier than writing a book Amen. of 350 pages. Which means that the man who wrote the book probably knows a little more than the man who wrote the article. Amen. And he sure knows more than the guy who posted something on social media. Amen. I guarantee you that. 
So if you want to be a person of knowledge, read a real book. You say, well, how about an audio book? Well, I have no objections to audio books, if they're real books. <laughs> and they are. And maybe that's, maybe that's what you've got time for. But there's really no substitute for reading. The first literate society in world history were the Hebrews. And once upon a time, the United States was known for being among the most literate of all nations. Because our ancestors wanted us to be readers. The founders of this nation read mountains of books. And they knew a lot about a lot of things. Many varied, widely varied topics. So gentlemen, my exhortation to you is to be, to be a man of our time that has a sense and a, a knowledge of knowledge. You need to read a lot. And what that does, it develops an instinct. I guess I better comment real quick on this point. Being widely read gives you a sense and gives you an instinct regarding topics that cross your path. Somebody says something and you say to yourself, gee, hmm, that rings true. Or you say to yourself, gee, that doesn't ring true. You don't have time necessarily to research it. But your background knowledge will provide a bit of an instinct. Now that instinct doesn't come from nowhere. That instinct has to be cultivated and developed by being widely read and having a basis of knowledge to be able to say, you know, I can't tell you why, but I think what he just said probably not true because you are a man of knowledge and I better throw out one more thought be brave men when you read do not read only that which you think you'll agree with alright did you hear what I said alright so that's called they call that now confirmation bias a nice word that just means you're just you're just you're cherry picking don't read only that which you are confident you'll agree with you must occasionally read something that you are confident you will disagree with now I didn't want you to read a lot of that necessarily but if you never dip your toe into the other side of the argument and give the other side of the argument an opportunity to make their case, you will not be well read. You will never be well read. And that's a little tough. It takes some intellectual courage because it may, you're, you're, because there's all of, all of us may have a little bit of a fear here. You're afraid of what you might discover. <laughs> and you don't want to discover something from the other side. But you must compel yourself. All right, enough on that. Let's go to the last point. It's important to be a biblical renaissance man that you've got to be, you've got to be tough and tender in your emotions. You've got to emotion, be emotionally tough and you've got to be emotionally tender, as is appropriate. Now, I'm going to have to move quickly, but let's look at the life of David. David illustrated this ability to be emotionally tough and emotionally tender. 
You need to be durable like steel, and you need to be soft like velvet. So there was a book written some 30 years ago that was popular for a while entitled The Man of Steel and Velvet. And it was trying to illustrate this concept that you can't just be one thing. You can't just be the man of steel like John Wayne. And you can't just be a man of soft and velvety qualities like Don Juan. You've got to have both to be a balanced man, to be that renaissance man for our time. Now, in terms of the steel, this is really, in my view, regards your own emotional needs. Now, all of us have emotional needs. Even tough men have emotional needs. But we need to develop that toughness. And to some degree, that's really lacking in our society today. John Wayne was sort of one-dimensional, but I wouldn't mind having a few more John Waynes around. <laughs> so we've got to be as durable as steel regarding our own emotional needs. I want to give you a story out of Scripture. It's taken from 2 Samuel 16. I won't read these verses, but you ought to read this story. It goes like this. Absalom had risen up in rebellion against David. And as Absalom's newfound and new-built army was chasing his father David out of the capital city. David is riding out of the city or walking out of the city with his ragged little band of loyal followers. And some guy shows up on the hill above him and starts cursing David. Well, it turns out it was an old, old adversary from back in the days of King Saul. The fellow named Shimei. And Shimei says, David, you're a loser and a jerk. You're, you, you deserve all the trouble you're getting from your son Absalom because you're a bloody man who came against my, my house, the house of Saul. You're a loser and a jerk. And one of David's men, a loyal man, a loyal man with, who was with David, one of the few that were still with David, says, David, did you hear what he said to you? I heard him. He shouldn't be saying that. Ah, uh, well, I guess he's got his opinion. Let me go up there and chop his head off. <laughs> David said, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Maybe, maybe I deserve a little bit of this. That's what David said. Now, David showed a great deal of emotional toughness. All David had to do is said, you know, you're right. Go take care of him for me. And that loyal young man would have scrambled up the hill and done battle for David, for David's honor. But David said, it's all right. I can take it. I can take the slings and the arrows of those who wish to insult me publicly, and I'm not going to fall apart. I am not this little fragile thing that can't handle a little bit of criticism. My day is, my life is not ruined because I had a bad day today. I don't need to unload on everybody around me when every time something bad happens to me. When someone says, how are you doing today? They probably aren't really asking for you to unload. All they're doing is saying hello. That's all they're doing. It's just hello. When they say, how are you doing? They're not saying, well, I'm really doing pretty bad. Oh. 
been a tough week. You know, I had this and this and this. And they're like, uh-oh. I should have just said, hello. <laughs> All right. Be a man who's got some durability and toughness emotionally. You can take a little bit of abuse without falling apart. But there's a tender side now. Now, David had a tender side, and let's look at the tender side. There's another story. Again, I'm short on time, so I'll just tell you the story. It's taken from Samuel chapter 4 and chapter 9. It's dealing with those who are weak. Turns out David was soft as velvet when it comes to those who are weak. Now, there was a weak man, a frail man, a man who had a very hard life. It was a man named Mephibosheth who was lame in both feet. And we discover that David had a heart for being kind to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't necessarily even deserve it particularly. It turns out Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and he'd been wounded. Both of his feet had been damaged when he was a boy, and he couldn't walk. His whole life, as a, from a small child, he couldn't ever walk, which was a big deal then. They didn't have motorized uh, little chairs, you know. They didn't, didn't have prosthesis. He couldn't, you know, didn't, couldn't. So that was a big deal not to be able to walk in those days. So it was a big problem. Didn't have paved highways and concrete streets and elevators and so forth. So this is a trouble. So Mephibosheth was lame in both legs, couldn't walk. And David was very, very kind to him. David made a point to bring this weak man and eat in his palace, eat from his table. And then when the crisis came of David's latter reign, when Absalom rebelled against David... And David had very few followers for a little while. Turns out Mephibosheth, who'd been eating at David's table, who ought to be very grateful to David, turned out he wasn't particularly loyal. And then when David ended up winning in the end, and David calls in all the people and has to make various judgments about, what am I going to do with this guy who is not particularly loyal? And what are we going to do with this guy who is not very loyal? Mephibosheth comes in, David says, hey, Mephibosheth, when I was down and out and running for my life and had hardly anybody with me, it would have been nice if you had stuck with me, but you didn't. Mephibosheth said, well, I wanted to, but I couldn't. You know, I'm lame. <laughs> David's like, oh, yeah, right, right, yeah, okay. Any old excuse will do, right? But what did David do? He was still kind to him. He forgave him. He said, it's okay. It's all right. Now, David perceived the weaknesses of this weak man. He turns out he was weak in spirit as well as weak in body. But David didn't hold against him. David showed, still showed kindness to this man when he could have said, look, you're, you, know, you were unfaithful. I was kind to you. You're out. You're gone. Off with your head. <laughs> I, I can't trust you. David didn't do that. So... There's when men we've got to develop a, a sense of when that we when we need to be soft, when we need to be gentle, when we need to have that velvet quality. And and a little bit of the old concepts of chivalry might be good. Uh, so so this idea of, of of protecting those who are weak is really a very strong biblical idea. There's a number of exhortations in the Old Testament 
that talks about watching out for the widows and the orphans and for the weak and the oppressed time and time again. Leaders in Israel were condemned for not watching out for those who were oppressed and who were weak. That's what you and I need to do, men. We need to be tough as nails regarding our own emotional needs and tender and delicate and velvety when we see others who are weak. Not just weak in body, but weak in the spirit and weak emotionally. Don't step on them. Don't put your foot on their neck. Don't say, you fragile little thing. Be kind. Can we do both? Do we have this ability to be tough and tender as appropriate? Do we have these dual qualities? So, in the case of David, in the case of a biblical Renaissance man here, we see that there's some emotional stability present. It turns out the emotional stability of a Renaissance man becomes a platform for wisdom that qualifies that man for leadership. No one wants to serve a king who is constantly only tough and only cruel. And no one wants to serve a king who is only squishy and soft. We all want to serve a king who is tough and tender at appropriate times. And that is our goal in our leadership. That's what qualifies us for leadership. And that's having that, those qualities is going to bring forward becoming the platform for the kind of wisdom that's needed. So here's two questions as we wind things down. Um, regarding your emotional stability, men. Now this is quite important. Being emotionally stable is very, very important. Let me repeat that, gentlemen. Emotionally stable. It doesn't mean that you don't get excited. It doesn't mean you don't show passion. It doesn't mean that you don't show zeal. I'm not suggesting that you should be apathetic and, and, and act like you don't care about anything. That's not what I mean by emotional stability. Amen. I mean, it means that you can be counted upon to be steadfast over time. Now, if your family members held a secret ballot regarding your emotional stability, what would be the result? What would your children say if you had a secret ballot about dad's emotional stability? Another question. If those same family members were secretly asked, do you show, does the man of this house, do you men, do you show more kind regard to the needs of others over yourself? How does that, how would that poll come back? Do they see dad, do they see you, do they see you men as men who are self-sacrificing? You show more regard to others in the household than themselves. What would they say? And as we kind of wrap all this up, and we think about these different polar tasks and duties that we have to juggle to be a biblical renaissance man, to be this man of balance, this man of flexibility, this man of multiple skills, this man of multiple talents, a man of, 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 of wisdom, a man of knowledge, 
uh, it builds a wide knowledge base. It, it's a big task. It's a tall task, gentlemen. This isn't easy to, 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 to master everything that, that, that we've been discussing this evening. But as we sort of wrap this up, it comes down to your ability to lead your family, to be a leader in your community, your church, your social circle, a leader uh, in your business, whatever capacity you're in. Your ability to function well wearing these different hats. It kind of comes down to this. Are you earning trust? Okay, are you going to be able to earn trust? Because the trust has to be earned, and then it has to be earned again. It's not just earned once. Trust is earned, and then it's earned again, and again, and again. Your whole life. You have to keep earning and maintaining that bond and confidence of trust with those that are around you as you juggle these different responsibilities and tasks and wear the different hats. Well, I do thank you for your time and I thank you for your attention. You've been a very patient and polite congregation. So God bless all of you and we trust and pray that your time here has been well spent. God bless you. Thank you.